Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, it's good to be back with everyone. We were off last week. Uh, how was your vacation, Ken? I didn't have a vacation, Josh. Thank you for rubbing it in. But uh, my <laughs> week was fine. How was your vacation? It was great. I went to Alaska. I saw glaciers and seals and sea lions. It was it was a lovely week. Um, but it's good to be back here with you and with our listeners and with some serious trouble. Uh, I want to start with a, a a piece of somewhat less serious trouble, although it's serious trouble for the, the attorneys involved in this. This is a case that people may have heard of where we learned about why not to use chat GPT to write your legal briefs. Yes, Josh. Uh, chat GPT, uh, as people may have heard, is a uh, hot new AI that will write all sorts of things for you. Uh, there are many controversies about kids in high school and college using it to write papers. People have used it uh, to write scripts for things. I've used it several times to simulate arguments between the two of us about various topics. Yes. Usually the arguments come out characterized uh, by give and take and mutual respect. It's, it's really terrible. It's not accurate <laughs> at all. Anyway, uh, in this case, an attorney apparently decided to use chat GPT to write a legal brief. Yeah. And it went very, very badly. Yeah. So this is this is in a case where a gentleman named Roberto Mata uh, says he was injured on an Avianca Airlines flight uh, by a uh, the flight attendant cart. And so he's suing. And then Avianca's defense is that the statute of limitations ran out. Uh, and you can't sue over this anymore. And so his attorneys, Stephen Schwartz and Peter Loduca of Levidow, Levidow and Oberman, filed this brief with citations of Martinez versus Delta Airlines and Zickerman versus Korean Airlines and Varghese versus China Southern Airlines and various other cases uh, that were supposed to have relevance on this issue of tolling and whether the statute of limitations had really run here or not. And the problem is these cases didn't exist. And so then they file this brief. Avianca's lawyers look this up, find that they can't find any of these cases. They respond saying that to the judge. And so the judge is like, can you explain this, provide more information about these? And so these attorneys, Schwartz and Loduca, they double down because they go back to ChatGPT and they're like, are these cases real? And they they provide the decisions from ChatGPT that it has provided them, and which is just more fake material. And so now the judge issued an, an order to show cause. And so that's basically, that's the judge saying, you're in big trouble, mister, right? Yeah. And there are varying degrees of how bad an order to show cause is. Here, it's very bad because, it, I mean, the sequence of events is particularly awful. So <laughs> they file this opposition and a motion to dismiss. And yes, it is considered traditional in the sort of weird, arcane expectations of the legal profession that the cases and quotations you use actually exist, uh, <laughs> that they not be completely fabricated. There is right. a certain amount of room for creativity in lawyering, but not to the extent of like making up characters right. uh, entirely. And when the airline's lawyers pointed it out, unfortunately, at least one of these attorneys doubled down with, oh, you want to see the cases? Here they are, providing completely <laughs> fabricated cases, which, and this is a nice touch, themselves uh, internally cited other fabricated cases. So it's <laughs> fabricated cases all the way down. And uh, one of the attorneys, the attorneys submitted declarations, one of them basically saying, well, I didn't really write this. I'm just acting as the attorney of record on the brief because my friend here isn't admitted in this district. And that uh, mm. attorney saying, oh, yeah, I use chat GPT because I understood that uh, it's the cutting edge of things and I didn't recognize that it might not be reliable. And here I even <laughs> asked it if this was a real case and it said yes. So how could you 
possibly think there was anything wrong with that. So the judge has asked for a hearing at which they are to appear personally to talk about all the things they did wrong. One of them being apparently the judge noticed that uh, one of the affidavits they submitted, they got notarized, which I guess is a thing in New York sometimes, even in hmm. federal court. But the, the notarization date is before the signature date, um, <laughs> which is not a thing. You know, a, notariz yeah. a notarized signature means the notary sat there on the same day and saw you did it. Right. So the judge is hauling them in. They have done the first smart thing done in the case, literally, by hiring attorneys of their own. One of those attorneys asked for a continuance and more time to help uh, one of these poor gentlemen. And the judge, this is, Josh, when you know it's a very, very, very <laughs> bad order to show cause, the judge rejected the request in handwriting on the attorney's letter. <laughs> so he, he just took the request and angrily scrawled on it with, with decent penmanship, but still angrily scrawled on it. That is, you know, you know, the boomer stories you heard about when I was a kid, you knew you're in trouble yeah. when you hear the sound of the leather belt being drawn out of your dad's <laughs> pants. Uh, that is the leather belt sound uh, yeah. right there coming out of the belt loops, uh, a sign that things are about to go seriously bad. But no, the judge denying your request for an extension so your lawyers can help prepare you for this hearing in handwriting on your attorney's letter is basically, <laughs> uh, in terms of portents, that's like writing a big no in blood over your bed. It's just going to go horribly badly. What sort of trouble are these attorneys likely to get in? Uh, monetary sanctions, referrals, possibly the state bars, uh, referrals to the committee that determine membership in that particular federal district, uh, the, the ability to practice law in federal court in that district, and uh, who knows what else that the judge's uh, creativity can come up with. I assume also in this sort of situation, they are likely to be fired. I realize that's not an, a sanction from the court, but their name is not on the door at this law firm. I assume that whoever they report to is displeased about the fact that they did all of this. Well, I mean, I, I question how much that person is uh, keeping up with the legal nuances of the case. All we know about the guy is that he couldn't get out of the way out of a drinks card on a flight to JFK. So I'm oh, not so, sorry. I, I meant fired by their firm. Yes. Also, yeah, presumably the client. I mean, I don't the. If you're in this situation and you're the if you're the client, are you able to say my attorneys were incompetent and therefore I should get another bite at the apple in this lawsuit? I'm, I'm in a criminal case. I know you can do that in certain circumstances. Can you do that in a civil case? You probably could. Most judges would probably let you have a competent attorney look at it. But by all accounts, the answer is that the statute of limitations has passed, and there's right. not a good argument on this. Yeah. So uh, it's not like that's going to get this poor person uh, much <laughs> out of this anyway. But yes, you're probably right. Yes, the the law firm, particularly after this, I mean, it wound up on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> um, that is not good publicity. So yeah, I, I think that their their continued employment is in doubt. Yeah, this is not a technology podcast, but I think we should just note that the way ChatGPT works is that it has read lots and lots of documents, and so it draws conclusions about you know what these sorts of documents typically say. And it will build something that is, you know, similar to what it has seen in the past. And in certain cases, that will produce correct answers. But in certain cases, it will just produce something that looks plausibly correct, that looks like a court decision. 
And so that's that's what you saw here. You ask for court decisions and it will give them to you and they will look sort of like they're supposed to, but they may not actually be decisions that were ever rendered by any court. No. And, you know, someone uh, on Blue Sky described the program as basically uh, spicy autocorrect. And <laughs> I, I think that's not bad. It just it makes predictions about how a sentence would go and how the paragraph would go and that type of thing. And it can write things that sound plausible and at the level of writing you do at six in the morning with a hangover for something due at eight. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to things like where people are going to check the background facts, then you're in trouble. I mean, if it's just, you know, fluffy philosophy and and like argument and there's no authority behind it, that's one thing. But apparently it's been caught doing this in all sorts of different realms, just making up authorities that don't exist or don't say the things that chat GPT says that they say. So what what do you make of the speculation that uh, there's a lot of jobs that people talk about that ChatGPT and you know future versions of it that work better will automate away and people talk a lot about that you know a lot of lawyer work will just be done by these sorts of engines and I mean there are certain things that ChatGPT produces well if you ask it you know write me a cover letter uh, for this job application it will tend to actually produce something that with very minimal editing you could then use now obviously the cover letters are exactly the sort of mindless type of writing that you know it's such low value boilerplate that that's the sort of thing that might be automatable relatively easily but do you see this as something that will end up having some applications that actually replace some human labor in, in your line of work only the dumbest stuff uh, <laughs> as you suggest and you know this has been going on for a while this is not new it was like 10 years ago someone came up with a chat bot that supposedly gave you legal advice and of course the legal advice it gave was terrible and showed <laughs> that it didn't know what it was talking about and so forth so I, I think that you're increasingly going to be able to automate some of the more mundane parts of the job, uh, some of the more sort of legal assistant parts of the job. But there's a lot of stuff you're never going to be able to automate, at least anywhere near the state of uh, technology we have now. And particularly because th this, is a, this is something where it just didn't get it wrong. It made it up in an effort to please the user. Right. Uh, I think there's an Asimov uh, short story where the robot continually lies to the main character because it's it's been programmed never to to harm a human, and it realizes <laughs> telling her the truth would be harmful, so it keeps lying to her. So I think this is the same type of thing. You know, the Chat GPT just wants to give us those six paragraphs about whatever, and it'll do anything it has to to do it. Yeah, our, our producer Sarah Faye notes we're we're gonna try uh, and see if Chat GPT can write some good uh, web copy for this episode of the podcast. I don't know if uh, I don't know if it'll be able to capture our voice, Ken, but we we will see. I don't know if uh, Chat GPT can make the rude references and gratuitous invocations <laughs> of taint uh, that are a hallmark, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, let's talk about the Trump documents case. Uh, there have been a number of developments, most notably uh, these reports uh, at CNN and in the New York Times, uh, that there is a recording of a meeting that occurred in the summer of 2021, uh, where Donald Trump, in the, the process of some interviews that he was doing, so this was not a secret recording, this was an intentionally made recording, where he talks about this document, what he purports is a classified document uh, from Mark Milley, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under him, Mark Milley had had made some comments publicly about that uh, he was, you know, he had basically stopped Donald Trump from trying to attack 
Iran in the last days of the uh, of his administration. And he's basically contending, well, Mark Milley wrote this document about how we would invade Iran, and he was pushing me to do this. And there's, you know, you can hear him shuffling papers on the recording, although it's not clear that he's holding necessarily this exact document that he's talking about. But this is, you know, th this is supposed to be another important piece of evidence uh, that goes to Trump's intent and knowledge about the classification status of the documents he retained. Right. So remember that for, man, there's kind of two halves of the case. One is wrongfully retaining the documents, and the other is obstructing justice once the government came looking for the documents. So with respect to the wrongfully keeping the documents, you've got to show willfulness. You've got to show a level of knowledge that uh, was not supposed to keep the documents. And the, the reports are that the discussion on tape reflects him saying that these are still classified, I can't show them to people, things like that, uh, that would tend to rebut Trump's belief stated in public that he can declassify things with his mind or that they become <laughs> automatically declassified when he walks away with them in his pocket or all this type of thing. It would tend to prove willfulness, which is one of the tougher things to do. In reality, I don't think it reliably proves anything but his mental state. He just says whatever he says in the moment and uh, without any sort of consistency or intent. Uh, but yeah, I, I, apparently he this is you know a war plan for Iran. He's mostly using it because he's griping about so, what someone said for him. And it would certainly be a, a helpful uh, thing to have. And it would be a very dumb thing to be talking about on tape. So another thing that's in the news reports is that Trump's attorneys, uh, in response to a subpoena, have said they've not been able to find a document matching this description. It's not clear whether the government has this document. And it's not entirely clear whether this document is real or whether this document is, you know, really similar to the way in which Trump described it. And it's, you know, and it would sort of be plausible that he was lying about this document because it's basically, you know, the he wants to say, well, really, it was Mark Milley's idea to invade Iran. It's sort of a classic Trumpian line. It's like, no, right. no, you no, you're the one who wanted to no, invade you. Iran. And so it seems like if the if Trump was lying then this is less useful evidence, right? Because if he, if he was like falsely claiming to possess this document, then that, you know, that doesn't actually suggest that he possessed this specific uh, classified document. I guess it would still, if he's talking about what he knows about classification status and that, you know, the documents could still be classified, even if he had, you know, in his mind that he wanted them declassified, I guess that's useful, even if this specific document isn't real. Exactly. So I, I think probably if they don't have the document, they're not going to charge him based on wrongfully keeping the document. Um, the fact that they can't find it doesn't mean anything. His filing system did not appear to be robust. Uh, but uh, absolutely, he could have just made it up in his mind and then he was you know, talking out of his ass about it. But if in the course of doing that, he suggested an understanding of the way the process works, knowledge that he can't simply unilaterally declassify things, and an understanding that you're not supposed to just walk off with uh, classified documents, then that's transferable to other documents, to other issues. So that would be uh, useful. And his, his response would have to be, well, I was just making stuff up when I talked about knowing any of that, too, which is... <laughs> Not a great defense to go with, uh, no. but it is consistent with the general defense of Trump, which is that he doesn't really mean anything he says, and you can't really draw inferences about his knowledge and intent the way you could with a normal person when they say things. Presumably, Mark Milley knows whether this document ever existed, but 
the document would be classified and and I assume even the existence of the document would be classified. How would that work if you were, you know, if you're questioning Mark Milley about this document? Could you in open court discuss whether the document was real and what it said? Well, sometimes you have to have the government get the appropriate internal authorities to declassify or declassify for a limited purpose. And that's why uh, Espionage Act cases and similar cases can be problematical because often you have to make a basic decision about what's more important, prosecuting this person for this violation or protecting this information uh, that is the substance that they allegedly walked off with. Other developments that we've seen in this case, I mean, first of all, the, the at his town hall last month, uh, uh, Caitlin Collins from CNN asked Donald Trump about did he show documents to people, uh, classified documents to people after he left office, and he said, not really. I, I uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I yelled when that happened. Someone came into my <laughs> office to see if I was okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not a good line, not really. <laughs> um, so. Well, but so that's, I mean, how would you use that in court if you're the government? You show it as an inconsistent statement if he's made multiple statements about whether or not he showed classified documents to people. You show it as him being unserious and cute about the whole <laughs> subject matter area. You say that, uh, you know, he could have just said a flat no if he genuinely believed that the documents were no longer classified by their very nature because he'd taken them. Uh, you could say any of those things. It depends on what sort of approach he takes at trial. And then there are these news reports uh, that Donald Trump's attorneys have told him to expect to be indicted in this case. Does that mean anything? I mean, when, when if his attorneys are telling him to expect to be indicted, is that because the government has told them they're going to indict? Is it just because they, like everybody else, can see what's happening in this case? I mean, I, you know, I can see the public news reports and I think, yeah, Donald Trump should probably prepare to be indicted in this case. How much knowledge would his attorneys have about whether he's going to be indicted? A lot. So they probably have the most information about the totality of the investigation, what's been going on. People are giving information to them. They have probably had some uh, conversations with Jack Smith's office. Um, they have probably been told that Trump is a target, uh, which is more than just a subject. In other words, it's a target is someone that they believe they will indict as opposed to just someone who's behavior they are investigating. Uh, and they may even had more elaborate discussions than that uh, that may have been involved. Yes, we think we're probably indicting him. So they their assessment for all their other flaws uh, is probably uh, an accurate one. And does that tell us anything about a likely timeline? Not necessarily, no. So we've seen different things about different phases of these investigations Jack Smith has been doing. We saw the issue with former Vice President Mike Pence being uh, questioned before the grand jury. And I pointed out that's probably a late stage type of move in the investigation into January 6th. Uh, here we saw that uh, somewhat uh, bumptious entitled letter from Trump's attorneys demanding a meeting uh, with Jack Smith or the attorney general about this terrible, unjust investigation. That is likely a sign of a late stage investigation if they think they need to be asking for that now. That's the type of thing you do if you think indictment is relatively imminent. But relatively imminent in federal criminal investigation time, Josh, can mean next week or it could plausibly mean next year. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's also been these news reports about sort of the the physical movement of documents around Mar-a-Lago, that there were boxes moved the day before uh, the search uh, for for documents. And so presumably this and and they've there have been other news reports about how the the government has interviewed so many people who work at Mar-a-Lago. And these are, you know, in, you know, if you're someone who's moving boxes around the the building, you're you're probably not generally a super high aide to the former president. So it's like it, it's the this quasi hotel where you have all of these people. It's like you know where you know who saw what boxes move where. Um, that presumably goes to the obstruction of justice. They would be making a case that he was trying to hide certain documents from the government. Yeah, I mean, it seems on its face that moving a bunch of classified documents the day before the search happened could show somebody's intent. Uh, the question is whose? You really need to connect the people doing the moving to the people you want to charge. Yeah, you know, because uh, if Wayne, who normally runs the omelet bar on Sundays, is the one moving the box, <laughs> uh, unless you can connect Wayne to Trump or one of Trump's lawyers or something like that, it doesn't make a lot of difference. Who knows why Wayne was doing it? Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's just Wayne. Uh, right. But Wayne, you, you need to. Um, you need to get someone giving orders to do something in a way where you can at least infer. Uh, that it's part of an attempt to hide the documents. Okay. Well, I think on that omelet bar note, uh, we may be able to leave it there for this week. Uh, it's uh, it's good to be back, uh, and we will be back again with you next week with uh, with more serious trouble. And Ken, uh, if people have uh, questions for us or you know, the questions about who's in serious trouble, where should they send those? Well, Josh, they can email us at ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show, or uh, they can uh, subscribe and join the dialogue in the comments on each episode. Yes, that's right. Paying subscribers to Serious Trouble not only get every full episode of Serious Trouble, more than 40 episodes a year. Uh, we're actually what uh, this is episode 48. And we are uh, just about one year into this. This will be, uh, we launched, I believe, on June 11 of last year. So uh, more than 40 episodes, 48 episodes in the past year. Uh, you get every full episode uh, and you get to join our very seriously troubled community at SeriousTrouble.show. <laughs> uh, you can join uh, active discussions in the comments, uh, pose questions that we may take here on the show. Uh, so I encourage you, if you're enjoying the show, go there, subscribe. Uh, it's $6 a month or $60 a year. Uh, and you can join the comments section on this very episode and, and all the future ones. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time.